Let's bow our heads as we pray together. Again, our Father, we thank you that you are a God of all grace, that you deal with us in grace, not in full justice. For Lord, if we ever fully receive from your hand all that we justly deserved, we would be forever cut off from you and facing the full fury of your wrath endlessly. So we thank you, Lord, for your grace, that we are saved on the basis of grace alone, through Christ alone, based on what the Scripture teaches alone, and that we are indeed, Lord, blessed to know that it's on the basis of faith alone, and ultimately, Lord, it's all for your glory and your glory alone. And may this preaching of your word today give glory to you and you alone. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Some of you may know the name Alexander Solzhenitsyn. A little bit of a mouthful to say his name, but uh, he was a person raised uh, in the Soviet Union. He was brainwashed as a child. He bought the whole story of a uh, the understanding that religion was really supposed to be a crutch for people and bought into all this communistic, godless philosophy. He fought in World War II, became disillusioned with the brutality of some of the Russian soldiers that he uh, saw firsthand, and soon began to criticize Stalin and for making his comments and thoughts about Stalin known, he was sentenced to the gulag, to the prison, for at least eight years. And during that time and subsequently, he began to articulate more and more his understanding that the godless communistic philosophy was absolutely wrong. And as God began to open his eyes, he came to faith in Christ and he began to speak out courageously and boldly against all of the brutality of that godless culture against its own people as millions and millions were put to death because of the state's insistence on ruling as it would. As a matter of fact, one of the comments that Solzhenitsyn made when he came to the states back in 1978 was a speech before Harvard University commencement. He said this statement, Must one point out that from ancient times a decline in courage has been considered the beginning of the end? What was he saying there? He's saying that if we lose our courage to speak against evil, to speak against that which is wrong, to speak against the powers, whoever they may be, if we lose our courage, then only the power of that evil force will even grow stronger and stronger. I've been thinking about this week as I've reviewed in my mind all the changes, all the pressures, all of the things that have stirred up over the years that have been difficult for Darius people to stand against that which is going on around them, and to follow God faithfully. I think about Daniel and his three cohorts in Babylon, standing alone against the 
the powers to be that demanded uh, conformity to worshiping the idol. And then, there, of course, there were those who, in the early church, stood and refused to declare Caesar as Lord, and many of them lost their life because of it. And then you think further on in world history to the reformers, who also similarly stood for biblical truth against the powerful religious and political powers and rulers who enforced, who mandated conformity to these various traditions of the church. What was it that helped to reinforce the backbone of these individuals who stood against all of the powers against them during that time, who displayed courage against all odds? Excuse me. I'm convinced it was one critical factor, at least, that was deeply one critical factor that was deeply held, and it was unbending convictions that are rooted in the Word of God. And as we commemorate this morning the 501st anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, I want us really to consider three insights into courageous convictions, taking a stand for the truth, the truth of God. And I want to look at three different situations as we do so, but I'd like to begin with reading of the Word of God found in Joshua chapter 1. If you make your way there to Joshua, the first chapter, beginning in verse 1, page 263 in your pew Bible. Now it came about after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun. Moses' servant, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, cross this Jordan. By the way, the children of Israel have been wandering in the wilderness 40 years. Now they're on the east, eastern um, side, the eastern border of the Jordan River. They're getting ready to cross over from the east into the west, into the promised land. Uh, He says, cross this Jordan and you and all this people to the land which I am giving to them, to the sons of Israel. Every place on which the sole of your foot treads, I have given it to you just as I spoke to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, even as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites and as far as the great sea, that's the Mediterranean Sea, toward the setting of the sun will be your territory. No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall give this people possession of the land which I swore to the fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law which Moses my servant commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, so that you may have success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, and so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. Then you will have then you then you will make your way prosperous and you will have success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you 
wherever you go. Let's consider three situations in which courageous convictions are so um, important. We first of all want to consider God's mandate, God's mandate for courageous convictions in biblical history. And we're going to look at the situation of Joshua and the children of Israel. As we open the book here in Joshua, it's written to a people who are facing drastic changes now. They have a new leader. It's now Joshua. They'd had 40 years of Moses' leadership. They have a new mission. No longer is the mission to keep wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years because they refused to go in when they had the opportunity. They were too afraid. So no longer any wandering in the wilderness. Now they're on the edge and they're going to take possession of the promised land. They also have a new generation of people who are now uh, involved in this process of taking possession of the land. This is Joshua's generation. This is a generation that had not witnessed the plagues. They had not been delivered through the, the Red Sea on dry land. This is the generation that had not witnessed the opening of the uh, rock out of which poured life-sustaining and refreshing water, which kept them alive and sustained them. This is a new generation. All that this generation had known is wandering in the wilderness for a number of years. They had never been in Egypt. And now Joshua is commissioned to lead this younger generation into a new era. The era of taking possession of the land that God said he was going to give to their forefathers. Verse 6. And so they're facing now new challenges. They are facing new opponents. They are facing new temptations. They are facing new dangers, new pressures that will now be exerted upon them, which will be obviously part of the testings and difficulties they face, which again will increase the likelihood of their compromising the things that God has been trying to teach them. Now, this is not a time for complacency. Clearly, they are in a situation where there's call to action. And the leaders and those that have followed were called now to engage in battle, to move ahead into the unknown and not just sit there and think about all the good things that they've already been able to enjoy. And you'll notice now in the first chapter of Joshua, it's no wonder that in light of all this background and what's going on in them, it's no wonder that God, in speaking to Joshua and those people in that generation, said this, be strong and be courageous. How many times did he say that in the first chapter? I don't know if you've got you underlined in your Bible, if you highlight it in your, in your electronic version, but clearly it's something that should be noted here. It is found, the words be strong and courageous are not found once in verse 6, not found twice, verse 7, not found three times, verse 9, but notice, even at the end of the chapter, in verse 18, which I didn't even read, it's found four times in that one chapter. What I've concluded from that is, under point B, is that this is clearly the priority of courage is being emphasized here. This is something very important. There's a call to courage. 
And where are they going to get this kind of courage? Well, clearly I think that the fountainhead or the source of this courage is not going to be rooted in Jeremiah's uh, military strategy and skills. It's not just because he's some great military genius. It's not going to come out of, of their confidence in the size of their army necessarily. It's not going to come because of the greatness of their resources. The source of their courage was coming from their deeply held convictions that were forged from hearing again and again and again the Word of God that had been taught to them by Moses and all of the generation prior to that. It was now the Lord emphasizing again and again to them, what should they do? As they move forward, they're going to move forward with courage and with strength. Only how? If they meditate on the law day and night. They would conscientiously were required to perform all that was written in the law, yes. They were encouraged to resist the, the idea of being conformed onto all of the various popular ideas of the people around them as they began to exert their influence to go their pagan ways. And he warns them, don't go to the right, don't go to the left. Sort of a danger to any and all of us who face the tendency to go to extremes one way or other in our life. A danger we face today all the more ever is to go to one extreme or the other rather than stay in the center of biblical tension. Well, I just, I've thought about this situation and what God is trying to instill into his people. I've thought to myself, courage doesn't just fall out of the skies. It is a response of faith that is grounded in the unchanging truth of God. And courage grows in the hearts of people who fully embrace the authority, the veracity, and the inspiration of the Scriptures. Anybody that has doubts about the Scriptures, they're never going to be very courageous based on the truth of God as found in the Scriptures. And the psalmist says in Psalm 31, verse 24, Be of good courage, he says, and the Lord will strengthen your heart. All you who do what? Who hope in the Lord. You will have a strengthened heart. You will be of good courage if you're hoping in the Lord, if you're relying on the Lord and what He said in His Word. God commands His people, therefore, to read, to reread, to recite, to commit to memory the Word of God. It is by providing this inerrant record of God's promises of his warnings, of his provisions that he has made for his people in the past, his past deeds, his plans in the future. God has given us all of this for our benefit. And therefore, in giving it to us, he is desiring to impress upon the hearts of his people the fact that he is a God of wisdom. He is a God who's trustworthy. He is a God who is holy. He is a God who is good. He is a God who is sovereignly in control of all things. That is our God. It is based on this essential reality that enables us to be people who what? Can move ahead in courage. I don't know how many of you have seen the little black and white movie clips that go way, way back to the beginning of movies, uh, films that they began to make, and they had taken 
various foolhardy attempts of people who came up with these convoluted, newfangled flying contraptions. Have you ever seen those old movies of these weirdest little uh, various machines, some guys with big wings on their arms, you know, and they're going to make attempts to somehow try to fly. And they've taken these things and they have put themselves in great danger by launching ahead, trying to get off the ground, and maybe some of them do for a second or two, and then kaboom, crash. The whole thing falls apart, doesn't last maybe more than two or three seconds. Now you say, well, these people put a lot of time and effort in their convictions. They were, con they were convinced that they could fly. That's why they jumped off the cliff, or that's why they were running forward at a speed trying to get off the ground. But their, their convictions were rooted in assumptions rather than in what? The laws of physics and the laws of aerodynamics. Similarly, if our convictions are constructed not upon our feelings, not upon cultural norms, but if our convictions are rooted in God's inspired, inerrant word, we are therefore more likely to be a people who are courageous, who have some measure of confidence to obey the Lord, knowing that His laws are unchanging, that His laws are true no matter what. So it didn't take long for the Israelites, back up a little bit now from the story of Joshua, you'd be back up a little bit, didn't take long for the people of Moses' generation. When they had the opportunity to go into the promised land, they were right on the same verge. They were in the southern border getting ready to move north. They were at Kadesh Barnea. And they sent some spies into the promised land to check it out. Ten of them came back with one kind of report. Two of them came back with another kind of report. As Joshua and Caleb came back with a report, they were confident. They came back with a, a conviction in their heart absolutely convinced saying what numbers 13 by all means go up take possession of the land for we shall surely overcome it unfortunately that was just two voices but there were 10 voices of the spies who came back and their report lacked courage it lacked any kind of confidence in god they came back saying listen there are giants in the land and they said, we are not able to go up against the people, for they are too strong for us. And if you're interesting, you note, if you look at Numbers chapter 13 and 14, these, this report from the ten indicated they had no confidence in the Word of God. <laughs> because that was what they were supposed to move ahead with. They were just telling what they saw and totally excluded what God was assuring them and promising them. And what does God respond? What did He say in light of their lack of faith? What did God say in terms of the subsequent fear among the, the vast majority of this generation of Moses when they lacked courage? Numbers 14.11, very interesting response that God made. He says this, How long will these people not believe in me the lack of courage was essentially boiled down to a lack of faith in god well i find it's ironic if you now come back up to the time of joshua 
and you think to the next chapter in which they begin to finally move forward and they send a couple of spies from Joshua's generation now into the land, the promised land, and they go into Jericho, the first city they're going to face now as they cross over the Jordan. They want to know what they're going to be dealing with here. And so they interview a couple of the local folks there. They want to know what's the general idea, what is their, what's their thinking about um, uh, what they've been hearing about things going on. And so they asked one particular resident there who said to them, listen, we've heard how the Lord dried up the water from the Red Sea. They had heard of God's great deliverance of the people of Israel. And he said, we have heard of the victory that this children of Israel have had over the Amorites, which is not too far, again, further east of the Jordan River. And then this quote, Joshua chapter 2, verse 9. Pick it up there and read. Our hearts melted and no courage remained in any man any longer because of the children of Israel... For the Lord your God, He is God in heaven and above and on earth beneath. Just hearing the report about what God had done in the Israelites filled them with absolute fear and no courage at all to fight them. Again, I say courage to do the will of God is really the outgrowth of a heart that fears the Lord. Remember what God said to the people of God in Isaiah at the end of that great book. He says, To this one I will look, to him who is humble, to him who is contrite in spirit, to him who trembles, not at opposition, who trembles not at danger, who trembles not at being unpopular with the latest trends of culture and society, but the one who trembles at my word. So it's no wonder God was trying to impose or to impress upon the people of Joshua's day, I want to build in you a sense of convictional courage rooted in my word, my truth. Well, one example of such a person in church history, I want to just consider him this morning, point number two. He's an imperfect model. Please be sure to notice that. We're not trying to put people up on a pedestal as if they were people without fault. No, they were, they were mere humans like you and me. But one of God's imperfect models of courageous conviction in the 16th century is a gentleman by the name of John Knox. John Knox. He was born in the early 1500s in Scotland, and he was raised a Catholic. And some people think it's a little strange to add this, but I'll just give this a little bit of his background so that you might know something more about him. But one particular author, I thought, interestingly enough, pointed out the fact that he was a man of short stature. Now you say, why would you include that? Well, sometimes if you are short in stature and you're taking a bold stand, if you're a person known for courage, it's rather impressive that you're not a person of great impressive appearance as if you're intimidating the other people. It's the other way around. Anyway, he was a person of short stature and he suffered ill health pretty much most of his adult life because when he was one time in St. Andrews, 
in Scotland. It was overtaken by the French. The French arrested all these different people and they took away the residents, including John Knox at one point, and he was assigned as a prisoner to be a rower in a ship. And there he is for two years in the galley of this ship, treated as a prisoner, and that just broke his health. It was brutal. Well, he eventually got out of that and eventually made his way into education, into becoming a person who, as an adult, was brought to faith in Christ. He aligned himself with the Protestant movement. And one of the reasons that he did so is because the more he was exposed to the Scriptures, the more it became evident that the Church of Rome in Scotland at that time, in the 1500s, was deeply corrupt. Sadly, tragically, it was spiritually impoverished, particularly among those in the leadership roles of that church. An example would be the Archbishop of St. Andrews, a fellow by the name of Cardinal Beaton, B-E-A-T-O-N, openly, not in any kind of secretive way, openly consorted with concubines. It was widely known that he had fathered ten children out of wedlock. And most bishops, most priests of that day were appointed only because of their political connections. It wasn't because they were much of a a godly men or well-taught in theology and understanding. Matter of fact, many of them were ignorant of the Word of God. So much so that one of Knox's contemporaries made this observation. This is tragic. He made the observation that some of the priests in the Roman church, 1500 Scotland, thought the New Testament was a book recently published by Martin Luther. They were totally unfamiliar with the teachings of the New Testament. They were untaught and ignorant of the Word of God. And so Knox and others began to see that the prevailing pattern of worship had been so distorted and corrupted. It was requiring the people there who were worshipers to be passive spectators. They would come in and just sit down. And then they would try to endure this long liturgy all taking place in Latin, and they completely didn't understand a single word that was being uttered. But they would sit and endure it. And then the priests, all of their actions were obscured from view because the priest spoke and did what he did like this. It was all before an altar. All they could see was his back the entire time. And so Knox and others insisted as they read the scriptures, as they understood what was taught of the privileges and the joys and the blessings of being worshipers, that they would encourage those worshiping Christ to sing psalms, putting the psalms to well-known tunes of their day. They would encourage prayers to be prayed that were biblically informed. And they encouraged to listen to the sermons as the Scriptures were expounded, as the Scriptures were explained and applied to life in their language so that they could be fed the Word of God. Knox was determined to completely eradicate 
the corrupted form of worship that the Catholic Church had insisted upon, particularly the Mass and all of its idolatry and the worshiping of the host and all these things. And so Knox took his stand boldly declaring these things. All this is against the backdrop of all the changing political situations of one queen is here and she's Protestant, so everything is allowed by Protestant rules. And then another queen comes on the scene and she changes things entirely the opposite with only insisting that Catholic practice and teaching be permitted and allowed. Queen Mary is her name. Against that backdrop, Knox was determined to follow his convictions of whatever the scriptures taught, no matter who it was he disagreed with, even to the point of disagreeing with his fellow reformers. He made such a stink and refused to take the official order of service, not only from the Catholic way of doing things. He said, that's completely something I'm not following because that's not biblical. He says, I'm not going to follow also what the Church of England had come up with, very carefully articulating uh, the official uh, prescribed order of worship, because, he said, the order of worship requires everyone who worships in that way at the communion table, at the communion, to receive communion on their knees. And Knox says, I am not doing it. It is not right to insist that people do that. He says, number one, Scripture never ever anywhere says that that's to be the case. And secondly, he said, I have taken a stand and I will continue to take a stand against transubstantiation and, the, and the, all of the idolatrous worship of the host, which was the whole reason why people were bowing as they received the host granted to them. And so Knox, interestingly enough, has influenced how we receive, how we practice the Lord's Supper. Is when we sit and we are given the bread and the cup as we sit and receive it in that way. It was a total innovation of taking communion in a sitting position. No one had even thought of that prior to that time in his day, in his era. And then this quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones. According to Roman Catholics, Knox was more responsible for the abolition of the idolatry of worshiping the host in the communion service than anyone else. He took his stand. He spoke the truth and saw things begin to change. Well, I don't have time to go into much more detail about him, but uh, he did flee for his life at times. He had to go to Switzerland. Uh, he helped Miles Cav Coverdale with the English translation, which later became known as the Geneva Bible. And uh, he came back eventually to Scotland. He began to just declare clearly, passionately, and as accurately the biblical truth as he possibly could. He was powerful in the pulpit. I've been there to St. Giles Cathedral there in Edinburgh and seen the pulpit from which he preached. It's quite impressive. But let's make no mistake, Knox was not perfect. And one of the dangers of people who have strong sense of courage is that they sometimes say or do things that are a little bit too, too courageous, too outlandish. Too, um, uh, they lack proper constraint on certain things or tact. And so Knox, as would be understood, it said some things that were a little over the, over the limits. 
as what would be appropriate, obviously, when he's talked about some of these women who were queen over England at the time, he referred to Catholic Queen Mary the first of England as Mary, wicked English Jezebel. And under the heresy laws, by the way, Queen Mary sentenced not just three or 30, but 300 committed believers of Jesus Christ were committed to be burned at the stake because they broke the heresy laws and wouldn't follow the Catholic teachings of the time that were prescribed by Mary. If you'll think to yourself a little bit, the whole book of Fox's book of martyrs comes out of that movement of all those martyrs. 300 burned at the stake because they refused to yield to all of the Catholic teaching and practices being mandated by Mary. Well, the point is this. John Knox, no matter how powerful the ruler who was on the throne at the time, no matter what that ruler would threaten to do to him, he was convinced that God's word must be obeyed, more so than any will of any earthly ruler. And so he preached fearlessly the unadulterated word of God. And he called the people of his day to follow the authoritative instruction of God's word. I want you to just point out a couple of quotes in your notes under point number two. You know, he had a backbone that wasn't going to bend. Not once did Knox contemplate accommodating this preaching to the prevailing political and ecclesiastical consensus of the day. And notice what Queen Mary said of him. She said she feared Knox's sermons and prayers more than the English army more than the english army that's how much his preaching was viewed with such respect and with a sense of intimidation of his preaching someone once said the voice of one man is able in one hour to put more life in us than 500 trumpets blustering in our ears Indeed, his impact was so wide, Knox influenced not merely the religion, but the character of the nation more than any other man in Scottish history. It's no wonder. It's no wonder his epitaph was, Here lies one who never feared any flesh. How was that? How did a man gain that strength who was short in stature? who probably wasn't in good health, who was swimming upstream the whole time of his adult life against the Catholic teachings that were being mandated, it's because his core convictions were anchored to the Word of God. He took a stand. Let's bring it up to where we are today. Let's talk about where we are in the 21st century. And here I want to conclude with God's mercies. God's mercies can help to embolden Christians with courageous convictions in the time in which you and I live. What's our situation? Well, we live in a time when those who stand against the cultural current face all sorts of intimidation, all sorts of pressure. Like Peter, we fail to stand for Christ, don't we? We affirm the Word of God in our minds, 
but our hearts are obviously torn at times between the desire to please God and the desire to what? Please other people. I heard a story is rather humorous, but rather insightful regarding the fact that many of us do lack courage. There was a great celebration aboard this particular cruise liner, and uh, it had been going on for a while, and uh, there were various speeches that were being made, not only by the captain, but a speech by members of the crew. There were people who were passengers on this boat who were joining in and raising their voices to salute this man who was sitting at the head of the table in the front of the room who was about 70 years of age and this gentleman was somewhat embarrassed but he was doing the best he could to accept the praise that was being poured out on him earlier in that morning a young woman on this ship had apparently fallen overboard and within seconds this elderly gentleman was in that cold dark water right by the side of that woman and the woman was rescued and indeed the elderly man became at that moment an instant hero so the time finally came when this brave passenger on this ship this man who's been celebrated as hebrew hero he stands in the stateroom everything begins to be a hush you could hear a pin drop they're waiting to hear what he's going to say at the microphone And he gave probably one of the shortest hero speeches you'll ever hear. He spoke these stirring words. He said this, I just want to know one thing, he said. Who pushed me? He really wasn't a man of courage. But he became a man everybody thought was courageous. That's true of you and me at times, isn't it? We may at times seem rather courageous, but the truth is we all struggle with fear. We all struggle with abiding to the core convictions of wanting to take a stand when we know we should, and yet we often fail, just like Peter. My friend, that's why the gospel is so sweet to us. We are a people who fail. We are a people who find that people are more intimidating to us than to live in the fear of God. Jesus said, don't be afraid of what people can do to you to destroy your body. Fear God. In whose hands is your soul? And the gospel says to us that Jesus, who was absolutely courageous, took on our great enemy Satan and defeated him. And we therefore can share in all of his courageous achievements. And we can participate in those by faith and trusting in what he's done for us so that we don't have to be thought of as, well, you've got to earn your courageous stripes. No, we find them in Christ. And therefore, because we're securing Christ, we can face whatever people throw at us or don't throw at us or how we were rejected or how we're treated. We can therefore find we are always safe and secure in the arms of Christ because of the gospel. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. And Jesus generously gives mercy and grace to his people who struggle with fear and those who are lacking in courage. Turn with me to Hebrews 13 if you've got your Bible still available to you. You can open there real quickly. I just sort of found this verse to be something that spoke to my heart about the idea of courage. He says, Hebrews 13, verse 6. Interestingly, it's in the context of money, but we're not going to get with that right now. But I just want to look at this quote. Hebrews 13, 6 says, quoting from Psalm 118, The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. Why am I not afraid? Because the Lord's my helper. 
What shall man do to me? What shall other people do to me? Remember those who led you. This is the writer of Hebrews now. Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you. And considering the outcome of their way of life, imitate their faith. Take heart with all of the the cloud of witnesses, going back to chapter 11. This cloud of witnesses who lived their life by faith, didn't see everything that was promised to them, but they still were moving ahead, courageously taking a stand for Christ. Those who were uh, sawn in sunder, those who were uh, wandering around, earth was not um, worthy of them. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. What a great truth to help those of us who are intimidated, who struggle with courage. I wonder, what realm in your life do you need convictions on which to stand? What realm of your life do you need to be strong? Is God calling you to be courageous? Is it in your home life, dealing with your children? Children who are defying your authority? Children who are defying all authority? Children who are rebellious in their ways? And they're looking for someone with courageous conviction to take a stand for truth and stand before them and call them out on that, lovingly chastising them, teaching them to submit to God and His ways, to be a leader in your home, to be a person who initiates, takes a stand to do what's right, not allowing things to be done in your home that you know fully are not pleasing to Christ. Is it in your employment life that you feel the pressure to compromise? That you need courage to stand alone? Courage to speak of Christ? Courage to share your story and tell what you know to be true of Christ? To engage with unbelievers as an ambassador of Christ? Unintimidated. Unembarrassed. Just being real and genuine. But being firm in your faith. Are you a person who need courage to, be, to take that stand that's never easy to do, and that is to admit, to confess your sin before another believer? To take ownership of how you have gone astray and become willful and proud and your own behavior or your own attitude, to seek forgiveness, to humble yourself and follow the Word of God wherever that leads down the path of those difficult steps to take? Is it that you need courage to confront... What is wrong? Just be the voice that speaks up for those who cannot speak up. And you will give a voice to them in declaring the outrageous uh, wickedness that's going on. Are you the person who has the courage and needing the courage to trust God? To trust God regarding that which He's doing in our own midst here as a church. In the next chapter of our church history, as we look at things that are changing and you're wondering how we're going to do all these things. We need courage to trust God, to move ahead, to be obedient, to know that He's at work. Or perhaps it's just as simple as maybe you're here today and you know that you need courage to do what you know to do, you've heard to do, and that is to deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow Christ. You say, oh, I, I don't know, I, I'm afraid of what I'm afraid Jesus is the greatest treasure ever. To not follow Christ is to follow only yourself into disaster, into eternal danger. To do courage to do the right thing, the Lord is more than willing to hear your prayer, whatever it is your need of, of courage, 
But let me tell you something, my friend. That courage will never be sustained. That courage will never result in any significant change or action in your life unless it's rooted in the Word of God, not just your feelings, not just the emotion of the moment. And therefore, I want to conclude with this statement. Joshua chapter 1, verse 9. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not tremble. Or be dismayed, for I am the Lord your God, and I will be with you wherever you go. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, once again, we're reminded that you have said to us in your word over 600 times, you've said in your word, don't be afraid. Lord, we are people who struggle with fear. And oftentimes, Lord, our fears are rooted in convictions and conclusions that we draw that are not in keeping with your revealed will and what is really true. And Lord, we know oftentimes our fear reveals the idolatrous thoughts in our hearts when we put ourselves in the center of the world where we want to be liked by other people, where we're more concerned that we have less criticism and more praise where we want to fit in we want to be with the crowd we want to have no problems and difficulties and people who are causing struggles in our lives we just want to have an easy life we just want to be comfortable we just want to be popular lord forgive us we pray that you may first of all help us to be people who meditate upon your word day and night who have it upon our thoughts, fully taking root in our convictions, that which governs our choices and our desires and our aspirations and our longings. We pray that your word would give us a sense of awe and holy fear of you and that you might turn us into a people who are willing to take a stand, a courageous stand for you in whatever area of life that you call us to do so, and that we might do so for the glory of your name and for the great cause of Christ and his kingdom, in whose name we pray. Amen.